The CEO of Sidewalk Labs has returned to the Institute to update its members on the Keyside Project, an effort to create a 21st century sustainable city within the City of Toronto on a 190-acre industrial stretch of the waterfront. Since Dan Doktoroff's first roundtable luncheon, Waterfront Toronto has scaled back that vision to 12 acres. And since that visit, Doktoroff has had to address concerns about data privacy. The parent company is Google. After his closed-door discussion with the CD house Bill Robson and questions from the audience, Doktoroff and I dipped into a quiet corner of the Institute for a chat. And I began by asking him about a phrase he used over lunch, new urbanism. Uh, you know, maybe a better way of, of putting it is inclusive and sustainable urbanism. You know, we're, we're existing in a moment in time where kind of the rules of the game for urban development are changing. You know, rightfully, the demands of the public and the politicians who serve them are demanding greater equity. Uh, clearly, everyone is trying to figure out how to respond to the challenge of climate change. And as a result, um, you know, they're placing greater demands on people who want to get projects built. Um, that's particularly true for larger scale projects. And that um, is going to require returns probably to go down unless we can find a new way of accommodating the demands. And we believe we're at a moment in time where there's a set of innovations that can actually make that possible. What are some of those key innovations as you see it? Uh, give me give you one example. I mean, I think most people would agree that in certainly successful urban environments, um, housing costs are a huge challenge. Uh, we all feel it. We feel in Toronto here. We feel it in New York, San Francisco. But it's not just those cities. It's it's many cities. Um, so how do we actually make living in a city, particularly housing costs, cheaper? We spent an enormous amount of time thinking about that and think. If you look at the construction industry, it fundamentally hasn't changed in decades. So should we rethink construction? And, and we've been doing that, obviously not just us, but many people. But you know, we're huge advocates of what's called cross-laminated or mass timber buildings. Tall buildings where the structure is largely made out of wood. I read recently that you can now build these towers as high as 36 stories. They haven't been done that high yet, but we think it's possible. We've been doing a lot of due diligence and research um, and actually have advanced designs to uh, a very, very advanced place and believe that it's actually possible. Now, why would you want to do that? And the reason is because it serves a bunch of different purposes. One is I think there's an aesthetic value to it. Um, but beyond that, there's a huge sustainability benefit. Um, wood is a naturally carbon sequestering material, but more importantly, um, it per pound actually is much stronger than say steel or concrete, which means it can be um, moved around much less expensively uh, and much, le much less, um, which saves time on truck trips and other things. The other thing though that's really important is it can be manipulated more easily. And we've been working on the design of a factory to be able to leverage a pre-designed kit of parts that we think can ultimately lower the cost of construction at scale by about 20%. Um, we also think we can lower the amount of time it takes to construct a 
multi-story building um, by as much as 35 percent. Well, if we can then take those savings and turn them back into affordability, that's a great thing. So you've got experience building affordable housing in New York. Um, with that in mind, tell me more about how you can apply that to Toronto and, and some of the lessons that you learned in your political life in the city so nice they named it twice. <laughs> well, um, first of all, every city is different for sure. Uh, but, you know, to create affordable housing, you know, typically cities only have two tools to create affordable housing. And affordable housing means, you know, housing that is subsidized in some way by government or potentially by a developer, basically less than market rate. And the tools are typically just money and government-owned land. Um, so if you want to provide a subsidy, it's got to come from somewhere. Um, and um, the cheaper you make the buildings, the less subsidization is required and the more of it ultimately for the same dollars of available capital um, can be used and therefore you create more units of affordable housing. We think that is incredibly compelling, but it's gonna take a real change in the way we think about buildings. So that's just one of literally dozens of innovations that we're proposing for the Keyside neighborhood here in Toronto. Uh, there are many, many others that also go to either affordability, some cases sustainability, new approaches to thinking about the way streets function, um, the way public space functions, the experience of living um, in buildings. Um, ultimately, the goal is not about the technology though. The goal is to improve people's quality of life. Can we make life for people cheaper, you know, more convenient, fairer, safer, healthier, et cetera. That's what we're trying for. But you got to admit, the technology is pretty sexy. The idea of robotic garbage cans that basically empty themselves really gets into people's minds, right? It does. But, you know, at the end of the day, um, what we don't want to do is innovation for innovation's sake. We want to do is to serve a purpose. So if there's a you know, robotic garbage cans or having a new approach, uh, which we're actually piloting here in Toronto, to incentivizing people to recycle more fundamentally helps with the, um, the solid waste management system, which is a big contributor to climate change, then it's worth it. If it doesn't serve a purpose, it's not worth it. So what is pushing back the waterfront Toronto decision to May 20th ultimately mean? Is, is that a sign that things are in trouble here? No, not at all. Um, it, what it is an indication of is that um, the, this project is really complicated. You know, we're, we're not just doing a normal development. Um, when you layer into it um, the bold innovation agenda, uh, understanding the ramifications of each aspect of that agenda, both in terms of its cost, but more importantly, in terms of its feasibility and um, the regulatory approvals that'll be necessary for it. Um, laying all of that out is just really complicated. And, and I have to say, um, you know, we entered into what we call the threshold issues agreement with Waterfront Toronto, with the support of the three levels of government back at the end of October. And all parties are working uh, really diligently 
um, with uh, in great faith um, to push this forward as quickly as we can. So a few weeks um, added on to a self-imposed deadline uh, don't really doesn't really mean much. What's the biggest public policy hurdle you need to overcome? Yeah, I think it's not one little thing. I think it's actually a big thing, which is, you know, can we uh, and our governments um, figure out a way to accommodate um, a very aggressive innovation agenda that will require them in many cases to think differently than the way they have in the past? So, you know, that is a lot of what we're proposing here. Certainly the combination of things have never been done before. And there's a lot of government action that is involved in this, and it takes time. How much of that is education? Because I, I look at what's happened in the United States where Mark Zuckerberg gets hauled before Congress and politicians are asking him to basically explain how it works. Um, how could we trust those lawmakers to understand the issues of the day when they don't understand something as ubiquitous as how Facebook works? Do you find that there's that kind of a 21st century education that's required of politicians in Toronto to truly know what's going on? For sure. Um, and that is reasonable and understandable. And to be perfectly honest, we, who are supposedly the experts, have spent several years ourselves understanding what the options are and what they actually mean. Um, that hopefully has made us better at explaining things because we've had to go through the process of learning ourselves. But it does mean that there's a big burden put on us to explain things to people. You know, the, the probably single best example of that is the process we went through um, in order to reach agreement on a data governance approach. Um, we put something out there. Um, there was natural fear about a tech company having lots of data in an urban environment. Um, we modified our approach. We established principles. Um, there was big public debate about that. And I think, you know, while we're not at a final destination, I think where we're arriving um, is a really thoughtful, novel approach that vests control of these issues in government, which is where we actually believe it belongs, um, with you know a whole set of evolving ideas as to how to actually manage it effectively. Um, so that was all part of an education process, people understanding what might the applications of that data actually be, what do you need it for, how can you actually, what are the means of protecting it, uh, what are the different approaches to managing it? And you know, we work through those things together. I think, you know, it wasn't always easy or smooth, but we did manage to do that. Sidewalk says it can promise anonymization of the source of the data collection. And this brings to bear your point about how there's a big discussion that needed to take place about privacy. But while you said that you can anonymize the data, you know, whether it be a sensor that recognizes I'm at a stoplight and I, I've decided to jaywalk, and well, now we now know about that, um, to garbage collection and whether or not I'm actually recycling properly and all the other disparate uh, elements in between, but that you couldn't force other Keyside uh, providers to ensure the same level of anonymization and uh, privacy. 
why not? Well, first of all, we're not going to be the ones who dictate what the rules actually are. Um, what we do believe is necessary and what we know Waterfront Toronto with its government partners is working on, what should those rules be? So by the way, in every case, you know, we can't promise that um, in personally identifiable information won't be used. But what can be ensured is that there is a public democratic discussion about whether that use is appropriate or not. And what is, is important is that it's not going to be sidewalk or that private party that has the right to make that decision. Instead, what we think will end up happening is if somebody wants to use data and whether that is personally identifiable or anonymized, um, it'll have to apply to do that. And a governmental process will make that decision based on an appropriate evaluation of the benefits and the costs. That type of process does not exist basically anywhere in the world today. And so what Waterfront Toronto is thinking about here represents, I think, a huge advance from anywhere else in the world, certainly that I'm aware of. If the city and Waterfront Toronto can provide the light rail extension in the proposal, what do you do? Well, first of all, um, one of the things I've been incredibly encouraged by is just over the two years that we've been involved up here, the whole discussion about um, bringing mass transit to the waterfront, to the eastern waterfront, has progressed radically. Um, you know, when we first got here, it was like number 15 on the list of transit priorities. And that's a very natural thing, because when you're talking about extending mass transit into an area where nobody lives, which is the case on the waterfront, uh, certainly the eastern waterfront, um, there's no political constituency for it, and therefore it tends not to get funded. What has happened over the last couple of years is sort of a very much growing recognition that the waterfront can be um, a very important outlet for um, the population um, growth that this region is experiencing. That density there is really important but that in order to serve that density, you need mass transit. Um, and so what's been so encouraging is the whole dialogue has changed and whether it is light rail or whether it's an accessible stop on the Ontario line or a combination of them, um, we're very pleased that government um, at all levels is discussing these things very, very seriously. If the 12-acre project is greenlit, what's the metric for success that leads sidewalk labs to say, all right, let's expand this not only in Toronto, but elsewhere around the world? I think there's two metrics for success. Um, one is, have we really bent the curve on the way people live? Um, you know, if, if we think that you know, what we're doing is in response to incredible pressures that are building up in cities, their costs and sustainability, et cetera. Have we been able to demonstrate that the approaches that we're proposing and ultimately do help to solve those problems? If we can do that, that's a massive contribution. We'll be very proud 
in which other places um, will be looking to adopt those solutions. Um, the second one for us, you know, being perfectly blunt, is that you know we also have to earn a reasonable financial return. What is uh, a reasonable financial return? We, you know, you know, something that would be comparable to what a developer would require taking similar amounts of risk. Um, and there's no hard and fast number. It's kind of a, you know what when you see it evaluation. But it is just very important to be honest with people that you know we are a company. Uh, said while we may have a mission that we think is to to do uh, important things and help figure out this conundrum that our cities are in, um, we also have to find a way to earn you know a decent return. Um, so those will be the two things. Um, that said, look, we're we're confident that these solutions can have those impacts and you know we're not waiting to uh, begin exploring other places we set up a company um you know late last year with ontario teachers and with alphabet that will finance um, advanced infrastructure um, some of which can be deployed here um, you know we are believe that we've set up a number of companies that we think um, can help to advance sort of this bold innovation agenda. Um, and, you know, we will start exploring doing similar types of things in other places. Dan Doktoroff is the founder and CEO of Sidewalk Labs. In February at the CD How, The Future of Media with Janet Yale, the chair of the Federal Broadcasting and Telecommunications Legislative Review Panel. That's on the 6th. On the 12th of February, it's the annual Jack Mintz Lecture with Alberto Alessina, the Nathaniel Ropes Professor of Political Economy at Harvard University. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the C.D. Howe Institute podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not-for-profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence, distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence-based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhow.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you.